Now I come to chapter 50 here, and we have the reason for the rejection of Israel, and that is Israel's rejection of Christ. That is the reason today. That is the hurdle they must get over before there can be blessing for them. He came as their Messiah. He actually was one of them. And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came to his own people, and his own people received him not. He was born under the law. The woman at the well says, How is it thou being a Jew that you ask drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Now we have here in this chapter, God the Father states the reason for the rejection of Israel. And then in verses 4 through 9, God the Son speaks concerning his humiliation. And in verses 10 and 11, God the Holy Spirit suggests that man trusts the Son. This is another remarkable chapter, by the way, and a very brief one. Thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Now, the fact they are in a position that they're in is because of the attitude and their relationship to the one that God sent to them. Now, in verse 2, God says, Wherefore, when I come, was there no man? When I call, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh because there's no water, and dieth for thirst. In other words, when Christ came, the dignity and worth of his person demanded that men join angels in praise and worship. He was the Creator and Redeemer and demanded reverence from His creatures. And God would have saved, but He was rejected then by His people. And today, He's being rejected by a world. Now, the very specific sin for which God set Israel aside is stated here, their rejection of the Messiah. When He came, there was no reception of Him at all. And there was no man to welcome it at his birth, no one to receive him when he began his ministry, and they rejected and killed their Messiah. Now, Simon Peter, on the day of Pentecost, put it like this in Acts 2, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved to God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now they have rejected their Messiah. And God makes it very clear that it's on that basis that they have now been set aside. Now, the son, beginning at verse 4, speaks of his humiliation. 
The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The title by which Christ here, the perfect servant, addresses God is revealing. It's Jehovah Adonai. This is the way he made himself known to his people. Now he came meek and lowly to do the Father's will. And it says here that how to speak a word in season. He studied the Word of God. And my friend, if the Lord Jesus Christ studied and knew the Word of God in his day, what about you, Christian friend? Isn't it really one of the greatest sins of believers in this hour? It's not sins of commission. It's sins of omission, omitting the study of the Word of God. I would say that that's the great sin of the church at this hour, just not studying the Word of God. It's the great sin of individual Christians today. That's the reason for this program. Now, he continues, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that's weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. Now, he's not talking here about speaking as the learned, but hearing, which means he was studying the Word of God. The Lord Jesus, when he was here, you want to know what he did? They say for the first 30 years, he was a carpenter. You've only told half of the truth when you've said that. The other half is he studied the Word of God. And therefore, you have here this very tremendous statement. Now, if he needed to study the Word of God, what about you and what about me? I think we need to get with it, and I must repeat it, because I'm already hipped on this subject. Anyway, this is my hang-up, and I can't think of a better hang-up than right here on this matter of the Word of God. My friend, the greatest sin in the church today It's not this or that. The greatest sin is the ignorance of the Word of God and the lack of study of the Word of God. It's nonsense today to say, Oh, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. I believe it's God's Word. I'll defend it with my life. And then never study it. My friend, if God has spoken between the pages of Genesis 1-1, and Revelation 22, then somewhere between that, he's got a word for us. And if it's God speaking, we ought to listen to him. Now the Lord Jesus, here in this section, he speaks of his humiliation. And in verse 5, he says, "...the Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back." Now, this speaks of his crucifixion. I don't have time today to go into detail, but you'll remember back in Exodus, the 21st chapter there, the very first six verses of that chapter, it told about a servant who wanted to become a permanent servant. He would back up against a doorpost and put his ear up against that doorpost and through the lobe of the ear, why the owner of that man would run uh, all through it. That is, 
make a hole there. And he could wear an earring after that. And I'm convinced that he had one there that indicated that he was a slave forever to the man. Now, the reason he would become a slave is because he'd taken a wife while he was in slavery and sold himself. Now, he can never go out himself because he's bound now. Now, the Lord Jesus came down to this earth, and his ear was not big. The psalmist says that in Psalm 40, 6 and 8. But Hebrews 10, verse 5 and 7 says, A body hast thou prepared me. And that body was digged upon the cross, and it refers to his crucifixion. Now, he says in verse 6, here, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And this was literally fulfilled. And that is the reason that Matthew and Mark and John, all three of these gospels record the fact that he was spit upon, he was scourged, and how he was buffeted, and how he was smitten. This is something that we might pass over, but this was something that was spoken of him literally fulfilled. Now, I drop down to the third division here, where God the Holy Spirit suggests that men trust the Savior and trust the Son. And verse 10 here, who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his word. You have here a wooing word. The Holy Spirit speaks a soothing and imploring word to trust and rest in God's servant. Now he turns from that here and gives a warning word in verse 11. Listen to this. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that ye have kindled, this shall ye have of mine hand, ye shall lie down in sorrow. Now, we had the wooing word. Here is the warning word. This verse is in contrast, sharp contrast, to verse 10, there is the wooing word. He implores them. But here it's the warning word. And the warning is to those who walk in the light of their own fire. A man said to me some time ago, he said, McGee, I heard you on the radio. I disagree with you about salvation. He says, let me tell you what I think about it. Well, he was ready to build a fire and wanted us both to sit there and try to warm by his fire. And I knew that it was a phony fire, that it would give off no heat or light either. And so I just said to him, frankly, I don't mean to be ugly or rude, but I don't want to hear what you think, because what you think and what I think is quite meaningless. It's what God said. And we need to walk in the light of the Lord Jesus. He is the light of the world. Now, when you and I reject him, who is the light of the world, then we generally walk in the light of our own little fire down here. And there's a warning. 
You're going to lie down by that fire in sorrow, and it means you're eternally lost. Now we come now to chapter 51, and I have labeled this the alarm clock chapter of the Bible. Here the nation Israel has a place in the past and future purposes of God. Now this has been recounted again and again. And may I just repeat this, because God has repeated it here so many times. You see, sections like this are passed over today. You don't hear much about a chapter like the chapters we've been looking at. They are very unfamiliar. I have quite a few letters from folk that tell me, why you're moving in an area I never was in before. I didn't know these things were in the Bible. Well, friends, you can't go into this section without recognizing that God has a purpose for the nation Israel just as much as he has a purpose for the church and for you and for me. Now, this alarm clock here is given to us because in this last chapter, that last verse concluded with a warning. And you and I might come up with the amillennialist interpretation. God doesn't want us to have it. Because we may say, well, the nation Israel has been set aside permanently. And where it's even mentioned, it doesn't mean Israel means the church. And God says this too many times for him to mean the church. If he meant the church, somewhere along the line, he'd have said, I hope you don't misunderstand me. I mean the church and not Israel. He makes it very clear he means Israel, and he means exactly that. Now, what he's saying in this chapter is that God has not set aside the nation Israel permanently. And this chapter precludes any scintilla or suggestion or theory that God is through with them. Just as Israel had a past, and it began with a very small beginning, just today, they're small and set aside. This doesn't mean God's forsaken them at all. I use the figure of speech of a train. God is running through the world, I think today, a twofold program. One is expressed in the Word, Yet have I set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And that's a train that's coming through. But right now, it's on the side track. Now, God has brought out on the main track of bringing many sons home to glory. That's the church. Now, that train's going to come into the Union Station on time. Now, when that is concluded, God will bring out on the main line the program with Israel and the Gentile nations then on the earth. And that one's going to come through on time also. Now, I have a friend, I tell him, because he is all millennial, and he's a dear friend of mine, I tell him, I said, you've wrecked that train that's on the sidetrack. And when God's ready to bring it out on the main line, why, you don't even have a train to come out on the main line. Well, he does. He didn't wreck it. Just put it on the sidetrack. And he makes it very clear that he wants to wake us up. And actually, God's timepiece, as we've remarked before, is not B-U-L-O-V-A or G-R-U-E-N but it's I-S-R-A-E-L. That's God's alarm clock. And when that alarm goes off, you can be sure that God intends the world to wake up. And Paul put it exactly like that 
in Romans 13, verse 11 and 12, and that knowing the time that now it's high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Now, will you notice, we have here in the first three verses, chapter 51, the origin from past history of the nation Israel. And then we have the outlook for the future from verses 4 through 16, and then the outline of present conditions, verses 17 through 23. Now, let's look at that. In the first three verses here, he says, "'Hearken to me, ye that fall after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord.'" Look under the rock when she are hewn into the hole of the pit when she were digged. Now, that hearken to me, God turns on the alarm. And he says here, to every sincere heart in Israel that longs to be righteous and desires to know God, he says, wake up, hear me, I have a plan. Now, he says in verse 2, look unto Abraham your father, unto Sarah that bare you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Now, God says, I called Abraham when he was over in Ur of the Chaldees in idolatry. And look what I've done through him. Now, I want to move in your heart and life. This is the origin of this nation. Now, we have here the outlook for the future. Verse 4, hearken unto me. Here we go again. He's trying to wake us up. And he's speaking now to Israel. Hearken unto me, my people. Give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. All my nation is Israel. And he says, my righteousness is near. Well, righteousness is Christ. He's been made unto us today righteousness. And then he speaks here of the isles. Verse 5, the isles, the islands, that is, shall wait upon me, and on mine arms shall they trust. Now, the arm of God, as we'll see in Isaiah 53, is his salvation. And the islands speak of all the continents where there were men at that time. And God says, I have a salvation will be sent out to them. This is a tremendous section. Verse 9, listen to him here. Awake, awake. And what he's saying here is, wake up and put on strength the arm of the Lord. That's God's salvation. In Isaiah 53, to whom is the bared arm of the Lord revealed? God wants that bared arm of redemption in Christ revealed today to a lost world. And therefore, he is sending out this message that that bared arm will deliver Israel in the future. Verse 11, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. Now, friends, Zion is a geographical location on top side of this earth. We need to understand that, that God means what he says here. And verse 14, the captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fall. For I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose waves roared the Lord of hosts is his name." Just as he brought their fathers from the ends of the earth, he intends to bring them. And that's exactly what Jeremiah says. He says in Jeremiah 23, 8, 
But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries, whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. And he makes it clear here that they'll no longer remember the deliverance out of Egypt. Why? So great will be the deliverance in the future. Now, friends, you just can't set this aside. And God is shaking you and says, wake up, wake up. And he's still going to say, wake up. Now, in this last section, the outline of present conditions of the nation Israel, sinful and desolate, but daughter, tell you something. Verse 17, he's shaking you again, friends. Listen to him. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling, wrung them out. And all you have to do is look at that city today. I'm very frank to say, that old city of Jerusalem holds for me no desire to live there or to go there permanently. I would never want to live there. And it was the favorite spot of David, and it's God's favorite spot. You see, he's yet to make it beautiful. He's yet to bring them there. And he says, wake up, O Jerusalem. I'm going to make you the great city that he said he would. Verse 22, Thus saith thy Lord the Lord and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. God says, I'll take that cup of judgment away from you. And now I'm going to bless you. How can you say that God is through with the nation Israel. Why, even poetic justice demands that after all of these years of judgment upon this land, this city, and this people, that God will bless them and that God will get the victory. That's what he's trying to tell us here. And if you don't see it, oh, my friend, will you listen to him again? Awake, awake. Wake up, wake out of sleep, because knowing the time, it's high time to wake out of sleep and say that a lot of Christians today should wake up and get up and get going for God. This is a great day in which to live, my friend. The most exciting time in the history of the world is now, N-O-W, and you know, I belong to the now generation. Now it's high time to wake out of sleep. Now, friends, we come to this 52nd chapter of Isaiah, and there are two things that we need to note as we enter this chapter. First of all, let me say that as we began to move through Isaiah, there came into not focus, but rather in a silhouette, in the shadows, in the background, there came the servant of Jehovah. That servant of Jehovah, as we move through Isaiah, it became clear that that servant was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we're approaching the 53rd chapter, it's very clear who the servant of Jehovah is and that it is none other 
then the Lord Jesus Christ. For the 53rd chapter will make that very clear. Now, the second thing that we need to note as we enter the 52nd chapter is simply this. As we were in the 51st chapter, you will recall that I labeled it the alarm clock chapter of the Bible. And the alarm was going off, by the way. Verse 9, awake, awake, put on strength. In other words, wake up. In verse 17, wake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. Well, we have the clock sounding an alarm again. And we have in this chapter, in verse 1, awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Now, we have here in this chapter, in the first eight verses, invitation to the redeemed remnant of Israel. And then we have the institution of the kingdom to Israel. And then we have the introduction of the suffering servant in verses 13 and 15, and it's very clear who we're talking about there. Now, back to verse 1 again, because the alarm is sounding, and God hasn't turned it off even today, and we need to listen. Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion. Now, I take it that when he says, O Zion, that he doesn't mean O Los Angeles or O Pocadilla, Idaho or O Muleshoe, Texas. I take it that he means Zion, and that Zion is a geographical place in the land of Israel, and that it's a very definite geographical location. It's really the high point in the city of Jerusalem. It was David's favorite spot. Now, the blessing is coming upon Jerusalem. And it will no longer be a place that's unattractive. I will give you my own private opinion of Jerusalem. And I was not thrilled when I saw the city the first time. I approached Jerusalem the first time I saw it. I came up from Jericho, actually. And we made that turn around the Mount of Olives by Bethany. And then you come inside of the temple area, the wall there, and the east gate. And very frankly, that was a thrill. It was late in the afternoon, and it was a shadow over the city, actually. But I couldn't wait till the next morning to enter the city and to visit around. Well, the next day was a great disappointment to me. That city is not beautiful in my book. And yet it says beautiful for situation is Jerusalem. And the Word of God says that. And that's God's viewpoint. And I will agree with him that the situation of it is beautiful, but not the city. But he makes it clear here, it's going to be beautiful someday. And it will all rest upon the work of our Lord in redemption. You see, he'll redeem this physical universe. He'll redeem that city. And what we have here is the millennial kingdom has arrived. 
and all creation is groaning and travailing together in pain, and it will become a very beautiful spot, the world will, when the kingdom arrives, and it's going to come because of the redemption in Christ, because he not only redeemed us, and he not only redeemed our bodies for this creature down here, we're groaning and travailing today in these bodies. We're going to get a new body. And when that takes place, creation will be redeemed, and the physical earth will be changed so that we have here a redemption, not only of the person, but of the property, and the type of redemption God permitted in the Old Testament, which is an illustration of it. Now he says here, verse 2, "...shake thyself from the dust, arise, and sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion." And today, the Arab is there, and these sacred spots are all covered with all kinds of churches, Russian, the Russian Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Church of All Nations. They're all over the place. And that place needs to be released from religion. It needs to be turned loose from the sin and the low degree of civilization that's there right now. And that's coming someday. And it'll come during the millennium. And for 2,500 years, that city's been a captive city and trodden down of the Gentiles. And now the shackles of slavery are to be removed. Verse 3, For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Now, since God received nothing from those who took his holy city captive, He's going to give nothing in return. He's just going to take it from them and restore it again. What a picture you have here. And then he speaks of the fact in verse 4, For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, Jacob went down to Egypt by invitation, but his children were made slaves. And the Assyrians and others likewise have oppressed them. That's ended when the millennium begins. What a picture you have here. Verse 5, Now therefore what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Now God received no gain from the years of his people's rejection. Therefore, he says, My people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. This, by the way, is such a lovely thought. When he was here 1,900 years ago, they did not know him. If they had only known the day of his visitation, well, they will know him when he comes again, and he'll say, Behold, it's I. And this has been rendered in a very free way by one commentator. He'll say, here I am. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? When he comes, Christ's rejecting world doesn't know him. <laughs> and he'll say to that Christ's rejecting world, here I am. <laughs> here I am. 
going to be too late then for multitudes to turn to him that have rejected him. Now, we come in verse 9 to this second division. We have the institution of the kingdom here to Israel. Well, you notice here, break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. One of the things you will note about present-day Jerusalem, you do not find a joyful song anywhere. And that's true of the churches that are there. I listen. I never heard a joyful song. Uh, around the mosque of Omar? No. It's all a very... Everything's in a minor key. And you go down to the wailing wall... Well, that's what it is. It's a wailing wall. And Israel is butting their heads against it today. But the way you're going to know when we get to the millennium is everybody's going to have fun. Break forth into joy. There's going to be joy. God doesn't care today, I think, for all of us saints walking around with long faces, complaining and criticizing. He wants us to have joy. That's his purpose. He said... That's one of the reasons. John says, I'm writing these things to you that your joy might be full. Not just have a little fun, but have fun all the time. How wonderful it is. This is the time when the answer to the prayer, thy kingdom come, is fulfilled. And you'll know it because there's going to be joy in this earth and the teardrop is gone and sorrow is gone and no longer will there be weeping on the earth, but it'll be a time of rejoicing. That's the kingdom. That's the institution of it. Now, in verses 13 and 15, we have the introduction of the suffering servant. My friend, somebody has to travel if you're going to be able to rejoice at a birth, a new birth, and a new world. Therefore, we have here the suffering of the servant. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Several of the administrations that have been in Washington over the past few years, if you will recall, have used this word prudent a great deal. They speak of being prudent in their conduct. Well, the very interesting thing is there's some question about whether they've been prudent or not. If you think the Democrats have been prudent, ask the Republicans. If you think the Republicans have been prudent, ask the Democrats. You find out nobody's been prudent. And all you got to do is ask some others, and they'll say nobody's been prudent. Well, I'd be very frank and say myself that man today does not deal prudently. When the Lord Jesus comes, he'll deal prudently. That's the picture that we have here. And he's the one that God hath highly exalted and given him a name above every name. Now we have in verse 14, though here is your suffering servant now. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Now, this is the picture of the crucifixion of Christ. And this statement here prepares the way for 
chapter 53 that's coming up. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Now, I want to be very careful here, because it's not always a sign of orthodoxy to dwell upon the sufferings of Christ upon the cross. Actually, you can be very crude in the way that you preach the cross and deal with it. May I be very careful, therefore, in what I'm going to say now. After the three hours of darkness upon the cross, it was during those hours of darkness when man could no longer do anything. The night had come when no man could work, but the Son of God was working on the cross. It was during that time that though man could not work, God was. And it was during those three hours that that cross became an altar on which the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And when light finally broke upon the cross at three in the afternoon, and men saw him, they were shocked. They were startled. He didn't even look human. He was just a bloody piece of quivering human flesh. It was unspeakable. We'll see the next chapter. There was no beauty that we should desire him. Now, that's the reason God put the mantle of darkness down upon the cross. Nothing there to satisfy the curiosity, the morbid curiosity of man. But remember, he was marred more than any man. And this is what I mean. When I was pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, I had a very wonderful elder of the church who was a captain in the fire department, a man given over, though, to first aid. He was almost hipped in that particular category. He had a first aid kit in his car. He taught it all the time. He always mentioned it. I know that he said to me a dozen times, you carry a first aid kit. Well, I didn't then, but because of his urging, I finally got one and put in the car. Well, one early morning, he was going out on a call, a fire alarm. It was very early, and he crawled up on the hook and ladder, and he was riding there. And a milk truck crossed the pathway of this truck. The truck dodged, attempted to go around this milk truck, and when it veered by the hook and ladder truck, it turned upside down, and the men on it were dragged along the asphalt. Well, I got a call just about five-something in the morning, and I was told he was in the hospital. And I rushed there. He was still alive. His father was sitting by the side of his bed. I looked at him, and actually his face was so marred, I didn't even recognize him. All I could see was a mouth, and he was breathing. That was all. He didn't last very long. In an hour's time, he was gone. He died. May I say to you, many times since then, I've thought, of the fact that the Lord Jesus was marred more than any man 
And that means he had to be marred more than that captain in the fire company there in Nashville. And friends, I didn't even recognize him. Just a piece of quivering human flesh. That's what my Lord went through on the cross. And I don't know that we ought to move over in the realm of being crude in describing that. Because the next verse says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Now, that expression, so shall he sprinkle many nations, that could be translated, so shall he make with astonishment many nations. Now, this carries out the thought that his death will startle when it's properly understood. The death of Christ should never become commonplace to anyone. And I think that we ought to be very careful, those of us who preach and teach, that we just don't get in the habit of keep talking about the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ and make it commonplace. It should startle man to tell about him because his death was different. And let us keep it that way. We have not told it properly until it startles people, by the way. And I wonder now, this is the preparation for Isaiah 53. And I'd like to ask you a very personal question. Are you prepared now to consider the profound mystery of Isaiah 53? And that chapter opens in this very marvelous way. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, in chapter 53 of Isaiah, I've divided it like this. The first nine verses, the suffering of the Savior, and verses 10 through 12, the satisfaction of the Savior, and I have a message on this, and that message I'll bring next time. But the title of it is, A Photograph of the Cross. But let's look here at this wonderful picture that we have of the cross in Isaiah 53. Now, those that are acquainted with God's Word, they realize that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and the 22nd Psalm give us a more vivid account of the crucifixion of Christ than is found anywhere else in the Bible. Now, this may shock some of you, because we're accustomed to think that the four Gospels alone describe the sad episode of the horrible death of the Son of God. Now, if you'll examine carefully the Gospel accounts, you will make the discovery that only a few unrelated events that are connected with the crucifixion are given, and that the actual crucifixion is passed over with a reverent restraint. The Holy Spirit has drawn the veil of silence over that cross, and none of the lurid details are set forth for the curious mob to gaze and leer upon. It is said of the brutal crowd who murdered him, that they sat down and watched him. You and I are not permitted to join that crowd. 
even they did not see all. For God placed over his son's agony mantle of the darkness. And some sensational speakers, they gather to themselves a bit of notoriety by painting with picturesque speech the minutest details of what they think took place at the crucifixion of Christ. Art has given us the account of his death in ghastly reality. You and I will probably never know, even in eternity, the extent of his suffering. None of the ransom ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Now, as we enter this chapter, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ was born, he lets us see something of the suffering of Christ that we'll not find anywhere else. Before going any further, probably we must pause a moment to answer the question that someone, even now, is doubtless asking. How do you know that Isaiah is referring to the death of Christ? Isaiah wrote, as you've indicated, 700 years before Christ was born. How can you be sure? Well, that's the question that the Ethiopian eunuch raised when Philip hitchhiked a ride from him out in the desert when the Ethiopian eunuch was returning from Jerusalem back to his own country. And he was reading the 53rd chapter of Isaiah as he was sitting in his chariot. And the little picture I was given as a boy in Sunday school, it showed this Ethiopian eunuch holding the lines with one hand, horses hitched to the chariot, and he's reading a book with the other hand. Well, I want to tell you that's not the way it happened. This man was an official of the government of Ethiopia, and he was going across that desert in style. I'm sure that he was under some sort of a shade and sitting there reading, and he had a chauffeur who was doing the driving for him. The thing is, this idea of him holding on to the reins and reading, that might apply to a Los Angeles driver, but not to the Ethiopian eunuch of that day. Well, this was the question that he asked of Philip. He says, who is the prophet talking about? Is he speaking of himself or some other one? And now I read the quotation from the book of Acts. We are told, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ in John, the 12th chapter, verse 38, he quoted from Isaiah 53, and he made application to himself. And Paul in Romans 10, 16, quotes from this same chapter in connection with the gospel of Christ. Now, without attempting at all to enlarge upon these references, we want to affirm that Isaiah 53 refers to Christ. And even more than that, it is a photograph of the cross of Christ as he was dying there. Now, this chapter, as we've indicated before, 
tells us two things about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have in the first nine verses the suffering of Christ or the suffering of the Savior. And in verses 10 through 12, we have the satisfaction of the Savior. Now, you will find that these two belong together, suffering and satisfaction. Suffering always precedes satisfaction. Too many folk today are trying to take a shortcut to happiness by attempting to avoid all the trying experiences of life. And I'm here to tell you today there's no short route to satisfaction. And that's the reason that I condemn with no unmistakable terms the fact that a great many people think if you go take a little course of a week or of a few weeks, go once a week for several months, that somehow or another it gives you the answer to all the problems of life and that you are well equipped then armed with the armor of God. Well, may I say to you, that's not the way God does it. And there's no short route. Even God did not go the short route. He could have avoided the cross and accepted the crown. That was Satan's suggestion, you remember. But suffering comes before satisfaction always. And the phraseology bears various expressions. For instance, like this, through trial to triumph. Sunshine comes after the clouds. Light follows darkness, and flowers come after the rain clouds. Now, that seems to be God's way of doing things. And since it's his method, then it's the very best way. Perhaps today you are sitting in the shadows of life. Trials confront you. Problems overwhelm you. The fiery furnace is your present lot. And you've tasted the bitter without the sweet. And if that's your case right now, then let me encourage your heart and fortify your faith for saying that you're on the same pathway that God followed and that it leads at last to light if you walk with him. For weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the suffering of the Savior. This chapter here opens with the very enigmatic inquiry. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the bared arm of the Lord revealed? Well, the prophet actually seems to be registering a complaint here because his message is not believed. This which was revealed to him is not received by man. And that's always, I think, the sad office of the prophet And when God called this man Isaiah back in the sixth chapter, he told him that you're going to give a message that they won't hear and they won't listen to you. And certainly that was his experience, especially when he talked here about a suffering Savior. And his message is rejected always until it's too late. God's messengers have not been welcomed with open arms by the world. The prophets have been stoned, and the message unheeded, and that's true today. I think it's true right now, to tell the truth. You remember after the last world war, when everyone was talking peace and safety, 
it was very unpopular even to suggest that there might be another war. Public opinion then demanded we sink all of our battleships and disarm ourselves, for our leaders told us that the world was safe for democracy. Now, I'm speaking about after World War I, you'll recall. And there were a few prophets of God in that period, standing in the pulpits of the land. And they were not pacifists, but they did not care for war either. They declared in unmistakable terms that God's Word said there would be wars and rumors of wars so long as there was sin, unrighteousness, and evil in the world. They stated that war was not a skin disease, but a heart trouble. And they were proven right when we entered World War II, by the way. When others declared that Christ was a pacifist, they called attention to the fact that he had said that a strong man armed keepeth his palace. I can recall as a boy that the church I attended had such a minister, and he was a faithful servant of Christ, and he sought to please God rather than man. But his message was largely rejected. He was not popular with the crowd, and the liberal preacher of the town was accepted. Time has now proven that he was right, and current events demonstrate that he was a friend of this nation and not an enemy. He was a prophet of God and could say with Isaiah, who has believed our report. And today, we are overwhelmed by the marvelous response we've had to the radio. But every now and then, friends, we're reminded that we're in a Christ-rejecting world. We've had several radio stations over a period now of several years. They put us off the air. You know why? They don't like our message. And one manager called in, and he didn't want religion the kind I was given. He wanted to know if it wasn't possible to give something that was a little more cheerful, you know, that men were on the up and up, and it's onward and upward forever, and that things were not as bad as I seemed to think they were, that man was a sinner and that type of thing. Well, those incidents and experiences that come to us, they just remind us that we're in a Christ-rejected world and we accept it as such and keep going and rejoice today that we have as large an outlet as we do. And I believe that there are right now in this nation of ours many prophetic voices that are trying to call this nation back to God before it's too late. And in spite of that, though, the crowd is rushing headlong after another delusion, and they are following any pied piper of liberalism that comes along and toots a tune that they can jig by, and they feel like everything's going to be all right. Well, Paul said the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, and from ideas publicly expressed, we're given to know that there are many to whom the preaching of the cross is foolishness. Well, I'll admit there's a lot of foolish preaching, and I offer no apology for it. But God said that they would identify the preaching of the cross with foolishness, and therefore this message is a challenge to those folk. For there is a reason for them thinking as they do. God says 
The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they're spiritually discerned. And would that they would give God a chance to talk with him. But it must be remembered that God does not use man's methods and ways to accomplish things. God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, and the foolish things to confound the wise. And if we were to call in a specialist in a time of illness, we certainly would not expect him to use the same home remedies normally used by us. His procedure might appear foolish to us, but we would follow it faithfully. Then should we not accord to God the same dealing of fairness as we do to the specialist? But we still have to say with Isaiah, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the bad arm of the Lord revealed? Now, there's a very definite reason, therefore, why men do not believe in God's gospel. Men like to think of God as sitting somewhere in heaven upon some lofty throne. The ancients spoke of the gods whose dwelling was not with mankind. The Greeks placed their deities upon Mount Olympus, and the Romans had Jupiter hurling thunderbolts from the battlements of the clouds. It's foreign to the field of religion that God has come down to this earth among men, that he suffered upon the shameful cross. That's too much to comprehend. The modern mind calls that defeatism. They do not care for it. A suffering deity is contrary to man's thinking. And there is a peculiar fascination, though, about this 53rd chapter of Isaiah. There we see one suffering as no one else ever suffered. There we behold one in pain as a woman in travail. We're strangely drawn to him in his cross. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Suffering has a singular attraction. Pain draws us all together. When you and I see some poor creature groaning in misery and covered with blood, our hearts instinctively go out in sympathy to the unfortunate victim. Somehow we want to help. That's the reason that the Red Cross makes such an appeal to the hearts of men. Our sympathies are made keen toward those who are war's victims, the victims of 20th century civilized barbarism. Pain places all of us on the same plane. It's a common bond uniting all the frail children of suffering humanity. And therefore, look with me upon the strange sufferings of the Son of God. Let him draw our cold hearts into the warmth of his sacrifice and the radiance of his love. Isaiah enlarges upon his first question by asking, To whom is the bad arm of the Lord revealed? And... That means God's rolled up his sleeve here, and that's symbolic of a tremendous undertaking. You see, when God created the heavens and the earth, it is suggested that it's merely his finger work. For instance, the psalmist says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork." And that word handiwork is finger work. Dr. Talmadge used to say that God created the physical universe and didn't even half try you see, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was without effort. He merely spoke them into existence. And 
When it says he rested on the seventh day, he wasn't tired. He just had finished everything. It was completed. It wasn't necessary for him to get up and do something that was undone. But when God redeemed man, it required his bared arm. For salvation was his greatest undertaking. You see, one of the objections offered to God's salvation is that it's free. Now, if you mean by that, that for man it's free, then that's correct. Man can pay nothing, nor does he have anything to offer for salvation. The reason that it's free for man is because it costs God everything. He had to bear his arm. He gave his son to die upon the cross. Redemption is an infinite task that only God could perform. Salvation is free, but it's surely not cheap. Now, we have brought before us the person of Christ. We're told something of his origin on the human side. Isaiah says here in verse 2 of the 53rd chapter, "...for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him." Christ was a root out of a dry ground. Now, that means that at the time of the birth of Christ, the family of David had been cut off from the kingship. They were peasants. You see, we'd seen before the stem came out of Jesse. They were no longer princes. They were peasants. The nation Israel was under the iron heel of Rome. They were not free. The Roman Empire produced no great civilization. They merely were good imitators of great civilizations. And there was mediocre achievement and pseudo-culture. The moral foundation was gone. A virile manhood and a virtuous womanhood were supplanted by a debauched and pleasure-loving citizenry. The religion of Israel had gone to seed. They merely performed an empty ritual, and the heart remained cold and indifferent. Into such a situation Christ came. He came from a noble family that was cut off from a nation that had become a vassal to Rome in a day and age that was decadent. The loveliest flower of humanity came from the driest spot and period of the world's history. It was humanly impossible for his day and generation to produce him. But he came nevertheless, for he came from God. May I use this ridiculous illustration? It would be, friend, like you and me walking out here in the desert in Arizona. And I don't say California because you can't tell, though, the difference when you leave California and go in Arizona, friends. It's desert, and you can't get it any drier than that desert is. Now, suppose you and I were walking across that desert and dry, not a green sprig anywhere. And all of a sudden, we came upon a great big head of iceberg lettuce growing right out of that dry, dusty soil. You and I, we'd be amazed. We'd say, how in the world can this head of lettuce grow out here? And it would be a miracle. Well, the coming of Christ was just like that. That day could never produce him. And that is the thing that evolution has always tried to get rid of is the Lord Jesus and who he is, because humanity can't produce him. And yet he came into humanity. Evolution could never turn out 
a Jesus. If it did, why hadn't it turned out another one? The interesting thing is, he's different. Therefore, he's the root out of a dry ground. Now that prophet focuses our attention immediately upon his suffering and death upon the cross. He hath no form or majesty. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. That is in the second verse of the 53rd chapter also. And now some have drawn the inference from this statement that Christ was unattractive and misshapen in some way. Some even dare to suggest that he was repulsive in his personal appearance. That cannot be true because he was the perfect man. And the Gospels do not countenance nor even lend support to any such viewpoint. It was on the cross that this declaration of him became true in a very real way. His suffering was so intense that he became drawn and misshapen. That cross was not a very pretty thing. It was absolutely repulsive to view. Many fashion crosses today that look very attractive, but they do not represent his cross. His cross was not good to look upon. His suffering was unspeakable. His death was horrible. He endured what no man endured. He did not even look human after the ordeal of the cross, as we suggested last time. He was a mass of unsightly flesh. Now we turn to that which is the satisfaction of the Savior. And here is something else that is said. He's identified as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now the inference is drawn from this statement that Christ was a very unhappy man while here upon earth. And to fortify this position, a few isolated incidents are quoted where it says that he wept. Well, I want to correct that if I can. You read on here in Isaiah 53. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see, it was our sorrow and our grief that he bore. He had no grief or sorrow of his own. He was supremely happy in his mission here upon earth. For it said of him, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. May I say, these pictures that show him long face and very solemn, they misrepresent him. Even on the cross, joyfully he took our place. And he made that cross an altar on which was offered a satisfactory payment for the penalty of your sins and mine. Willingly he died there, for its father stated, "...as a sheep before her shearers is dumb." He opened not his mouth. Perhaps you're saying just now to yourself, Preacher, that does not make sense to me. I do not believe that, nor do I care for that sort of religion. I do not want God to make a sacrifice for me. I did not ask him to do it. Well, it is true, my friend, that you did not ask him to do it. But let me ask you a very plain and fair question. I'm sure that you'll agree that man has got this world into a very sad predicament today. The wisdom of man has failed to settle the issues of this life. Now, had you ever thought that perhaps man may be wrong about the next life when he dismisses God's remedy with a snap of his fingers? Vain philosophy and a false science have not solved the problems of daily living today 
Well, they may be wrong about the Bible also. They've been wrong in so many other areas. Now, suppose for a moment that God did give his son to die for you, and he did make such a tremendous sacrifice. Grant that the cross is God's remedy for the sin of the world, and that it is the very best that even God can do. Now, suppose also that you go on rejecting his proffered and gracious offer of salvation. Do you think that you can reasonably expect God to do anything for you in eternity? If God exhausted his love, his wisdom, and his power in giving Christ to die and patiently has waited for you to turn to him, what else can he do to save you? What do you suppose God can do for you when you reject his son who died for you? He would come again right at this moment and die again if that were needed to save you. It's no light thing, my friend, to turn down God's love gift to you. Now, naturally, we're eager to learn why his death was different and horrible. What is the meaning of the depths of his suffering? Now note very carefully the answer. He's smitten of God and afflicted. The prophet was so afraid that you and I had missed that, that he mentioned it three times in this passage. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Consternation fills our souls when we recognize that it was God who treated the perfect man in such terrible fashion. Candidly, we do not understand it, and we're led to inquire why God should treat him in this manner. What had he done to merit such treatment? Look for a moment again at that cross. Christ was on the cross six hours, hanging between heaven and earth from nine o'clock in the morning until three in the afternoon. In the first three hours, man did his worst. He ridiculed and insult upon him, spat upon him, nailed him without mercy to the cruel cross, and then sat down to watch him die. At twelve o'clock noon, after he'd hung there for three hours in agony, God drew a veil over the sun, and darkness covered that scene, shutting out from human eye the transaction between the Father and the Son. For Christ became the sacrifice for the sin of the world. God made his soul an offering for sin." He was treated as sin, for we are told that he was made sin for us who knew no sin. If you want to know if God hates sin, look at the cross. If you want to know if God will punish sin, look at the darling of his heart enduring the tortures of its penalty. By what vain conceit can you and I hope to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That cross became an altar where we behold the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. He was dying for somebody else. He was dying for you and me. Now, let me read this fifth and sixth verses. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. Now, this is a very wonderful passage of Scripture, and I think there are several things that we need to note here, and we'll come to one or two of them later. But right now, let me say that when it says, with his stripes we are healed, now the question arises, what are we healed of? Are we healed of physical diseases? Is that the primary meaning of it? Well, I'm going to let Simon Peter interpret this by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. For over in 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 24, he says, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed." Healed of what? Well, of our sins. We're dead in trespasses and sins. Now, we've been healed of those. That is the primary meaning here of this. Now, we are told here, and this sixth verse is a marvelous verse. Have you noticed it begins with all? It ends with all. All we like sheep have gone astray. Not some of us, but all of us. And what is the problem? What is really the problem with mankind today? The problem with you and with me, it's stated right here in this clause, we have turned everyone to his own way. That's the problem. Man has gone his way, neglected God's way, and the Scripture further says there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And we're told today that in all our ways we're to acknowledge him and he'll direct our paths. But our problem is we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, when he died upon the cross, this passage makes it clear that he was merely taking your place and mine. He'd done nothing amiss. He was holy, harmless, and undefiled and separate from sinners. He was a substitute that the love of God provided for you and me so that he might save us. Surely our hearts go out in sympathy to him as he expires there upon the tree. Certainly we're not unmoved at such pain and suffering. We would be cold-blooded indeed if we were not responsive in our own hearts. It is said that when Clovis, the leader of the Franks, was told about the crucifixion of Christ, he was so moved that he leaped to his feet, drew his sword, and exclaimed, If I'd only been there with my Franks, yet, my friend, Christ does not want your sympathy." He did not die to win that. He didn't die to enlist you in his defense at all. That does not enter into it. When our Lord passed by on the way to the cross, women of Jerusalem were weeping. He says, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. Because if they do this in a live tree, what will they do with a dead one, you see? They would even take the Son of God and treat him like that. Now, he's not after your sympathy. 
Well, may I say that our hearts may go out in sympathy to him as he expires there, and we certainly are not unmoved by it, but he didn't die to win our sympathy. Now, someone may be thinking that he died a martyr's death. He did not die a martyr's death, for he did not espouse a lost cause. He did not die as martyrs, who in their death sang praises of joy and confessed that Christ was standing by him. Compare his death to that of Stephen, where Stephen in triumph says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he asked God to forgive those that were stoning him. But our Lord didn't die like that. He was forsaken of God. He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His death was different. He died alone. He died alone with the sins of the world upon him. Now, someone else may feel like saying, Well, what a wonderful influence the death of Christ should exercise upon our lives as we contemplate his life and death Most assuredly, we ought to be persuaded to turn from sin. However, that just has not been the experience of man. And by the way, how has it worked in your life? That view will not satisfy us. An explanation of some other statements in this chapter. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. None of these will suffice to explain his death, for he's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He died for you and me. He took our place. Now, that doesn't end the gospel story. We do not worship a dead Christ, but a living one. He not only died, he rose again from the grave in victory. He ascended back into heaven, At this moment, he's sitting at God's right hand, and the prophet says, "...he shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied." That's verse 11 here. We have a living and rejoicing Savior, for his suffering led to satisfaction. He took our hell, that we might have his heaven. He is happy. For down through the ages, multitudes, yea, millions, have come to him and found sweet release from guilt, pardon for wrongdoing, and healing from the leprosy of sin. Christ said, There's joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, and that number can be multiplied by millions. Think of the joy and satisfaction of Christ today. Friends, we have a happy Christ, a joyful Christ, and it's going to be fun to be in his presence. You can bring added joy to his heart. Those of you that are listening today that have not accepted him, all you have to do right where you are is to accept the gift of eternal life that he longs to give you. He's not asking anything of you. He wants to give you something. He invites you to the foot of his cross. And this is where you will find forgiveness of your sins. And it's to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. 
And may this be your prayer and mine. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears to wonders, I confess the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Oh, what a marvelous, marvelous prayer that is for a sinner to pray.